Just a quick technical disclaimer before we jump in. On today's episode, we were limited to the audio from the Zoom call we used to conduct this interview, so the audio quality isn't always the greatest, but regardless, this is still one of our favorites. Okay, here it is. We're born into different situations because of the, the legacy and, and residue of racism, but I, I do think more and more people are asking questions about that. And, and the quick knee-jerk theological responses like Romans 13, all authorities established by God. One of the things I think that is wonderful is some of that theology is collapsing and it needs to. Uh, so for some people, it was a pandemic. They just don't have room in their theology for a God who's, in, who's preordained everything, allowing such a, a massive loss of life. And you go, well, maybe that theology is the problem. It's not God that's the problem. It's the boxes that we put God in that are the problem. I'm Lexi. And I'm Zach. And you're listening to Proximity, a podcast where we examine the forces that draw us closer and those that push us apart, one story at a time. Hi, everyone. We have got an episode today that I'm really excited about. Now, at the time of recording this, America is in the middle of what feels like a massive turning point in response to a handful of high-profile murders of Black citizens at the hands of police. So in large numbers, our country has been pivoting towards the work of racial justice, and specifically, that has looked like a lot of us white people having to reckon with our role in the systemic racism embedded in our society. Now, I grew up in the Evangelical Christian Church, And so I've paid particular attention to the mixed bag of responses that have been coming out of the church during this time, specifically the ones that have been either publicly hesitant or publicly against the Black Lives Matter movement. Basically, I have had a lot of questions, especially about white Christians. So this is why I am happy to bring on Shane Claiborne today. Now, Shane is a white man, and he's also a Christian author and activist, and he has spent his career demonstrating and teaching about how causes like the one taking place in our streets are one and the same with the cause of Christ. Here he is. I'm Shane Claiborne. I am uh, an author and activist. I'm a Tennessee boy that fell in love with Philly, and I've been here the last 20 years, a part of a community called The Simple Way. And then I also helped lead a, a movement we call Red Letter Christians. It's Christians that want our faith to look more like Jesus again. <laughs> so, you know, the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. So I help lead that. And uh, there's folks all over the country that are organizing right now around racial justice. And it's there for, for so many of us, it is our, our faith that compels us to care about these things. I had the privilege of meeting Shane and his wife, Katie Jo, while filming for a documentary that Zach and I were beginning to make before the pandemic struck. And hearing Shane's perspective and the lens through which he views his Christian faith was something that I found really refreshing as it really spoke to my own trajectory with faith at the moment. I'm really grateful for the work that you guys are doing, especially right now. It's just, especially as someone who I am in my own process of like trying to find my place because I, I, for a long time, I thought you were either in or you're out as far as Christianity goes, like that you have to be with this majority of like white evangelicalism or out, but like I really appreciate the the people that you've been even highlighting, like uh, Reverend Jackie Lewis and Dominique. Um, I think it's just really cool. So thank you for that. No, I, th- I think there's so much that's happening outside of white evangelicalism, and that you know that one version of Christianity, which I think really has 
been one of the more toxic versions. The same people that led me to Jesus led us to Donald Trump. And, and some of them are still defending that. So when, when we see a, a whole generation leaving that, to me, that's not a bad thing at all. I think for a lot of folks, the end of Trump evangelicalism is the beginning of you know a more robust faith that cares about liberation, cares about suffering, and uh, the least of these, as Jesus said. So, yeah. Prior to meeting him, I had first learned about Shane when I was in high school, when I read his books, The Irresistible Revolution and Jesus for President. I read about how he worked in Calcutta with Mother Teresa, how he founded the Simple Way in Philly, and about how his faith made him an activist. But Shane wasn't always at this place as a person or as a Christian. He once wrote, and I quote, I share with folks that I too am a recovering sexist, racist, homophobic redneck. God can make something out of anybody. So I wanted to talk with him more about his roots and what that looked like to learn and unlearn so much. Growing up, I, I went to a high school that had the Confederate flag on our football uniforms, on our painted on the wall. It was Maryville High School Rebels. It's still on my yearbook. You know, that shaped my thinking. It, right. It, it, and, and it wasn't until I got outside of that kind of uh, insular world and began to see, wow, the Confederate flag doesn't isn't just about football spirit. In fact, it's not just about heritage. <laughs> you know, it, it's about a heritage of hate. You know, of, right. of racism and slavery. And so, um, these things are are you know really interconnected. But I think that gives me a little bit of grace with other people. You know, to realize that I'm not the same person I was 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, not many of us are. Uh, we're we're kind of a work in progress. When did you start recognizing like your own whiteness in the power wielding form of the term? Because I had my own like I've had my own awakening to that after for years thinking that like I could never be racist. I you know like I'm a good person. I love people. I have like black friends. Like all of these things. How did that shift for you? There's certainly a few very poignant moments. Uh, like like when I went to college up in Philly here. Uh, I put my yearbook on the shelf and it had the Confederate flag in it. And my friends were like, what the heck? That's not cool, man. You know, and, uh, and they, you know, we started talking about some of this. Like, I think that when it comes to the residue of slavery um, and the systemic racism, uh, I became more aware of that as I started living in Philly. And, and I'm convinced that um, our worldview is shaped by what we see outside the window. What we experience in our lives shapes how we think. It's very clear to me that white folks and people of color are experiencing the world through di very different lenses. Until we have the humility to you know, see that we, especially as white folks, have sort of a tunnel vision that shapes how we think about policing, how we trust our government, all those things. And until our window changes, it's hard to change our worldview. So for me, living in on the north side of Philadelphia, has changed everything. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be a police officer. All the stories I knew of police were hero heroic stories of courage and saving people's lives. And now some of the most traumatic experiences, the scariest moments have involved police in our neighborhood. Our house was raided by armed, an armed SWAT team by mistake one time, threw one of the women on the floor, ripped her shirt off, like, like stuff. And, and these are experiences a lot of people um, have their own stories of, but I didn't have my stories. We saw a police officer arrest someone in the snow and throw that one of their shoes over a fence and laughing that when he got out of jail, he'd have to walk home in the snow with one shoe on. 
Uh, and my wife almost went to jail for that uh, on that one for uh, intervening, you know. No, but you know, innocently, we we we've like dealt with folks that have mental health struggles, and some of them living on the streets. And one time, we needed to get someone into a hospital, you know. So we, um, in order to do that, it's called a three hundred two, you know, that we had to get a medical team involved. But the police are also first responders, and they came, got their weapons out gloves on, started cussing this mentally ill homeless man out and told, I mean, said things I don't even want to repeat, but that he deserved to die in the gutter. That's what they said. And, you know, there's 15 of us watching this. And yet we didn't, you know, before we had cameras and stuff right? and we, we reported it and it came back unfounded. The report was, you know, negated. And that officer was police or police officer of the year one year. And I began to see like, when it's internal affairs is police officers. And so now, you know, things that everybody's talking about in our country, we need a separate oversight committee. You can't have police policing the police. You know, we, we need uh, police not to be first responders on everything. We need emergency social workers that are trained in mental health and de-escalation. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of other incidents, I think, involving race that made me aware of that. But, you know, Michelle Alexander's work, uh, the new Jim Crow and, and her definition that that racism is a, a system of privilege based on the color of our skin. Right. Um, that helps me understand it. You know, sometimes I say some of us were born on third base, but we act like we hit a triple. Have you vocalized these things that you've seen police wise, like police brutality wise to people? I have, and, yeah. and what do they what do they do Christians get uncomfortable with that ever? Yeah. So what you hear a lot is the bad apple thing. You know, we have a few bad apples. And I I think it just the other day I posted, I think it was Chris Rock or something that said some jobs you don't want a bad apple, you know, like, Mm, I mean, he's kind of pushing back on the whole thing anyway, but you know, he's a comedian. So he's like, like if if American Airlines tells you, yeah, we've got most of our pilots land planes really good, but we got a few that, you know, they just don't, they just crash them, you know? (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. Um, So, you know, the funny thing is like, you almost don't need satire these days. The truth is stranger than fiction. You know? But anyway, yeah, I think I, I have been saying that. And that's where, you know, really realizing that that some of the history of slave patrols and what police have been and the evolution of how we think about policing is very connected to uh, our history around the racial subjugation of enslaved people. And so I think some of that, you know, the films, the books and things are good, but most people are not going to be quite ready for that. They're just instinctively going to say, yeah, there's some bad cops and we really need to do something about that, you know? Yes. Um, but then when you really do, like Larry Krasner, who is, you know, a, a legendary defense attorney that's now our DA, our district attorney, our highest prosecuting attorney in Philly, he made transparent the records of police, uh, the most untrustworthy police officers, ones that had been affiliated with overt white supremacy and racism, others that had criminal records that had done stuff, you know, on the job and things like that. So, like, people don't know that. And the more you're seeing it, like, this is, you know, the whole, there's something wrong with the whole tree. And I think the more that we look at our history, we see, as my friend Mark Charles, who's running for president now as an independent candidate, a Native American man, and he says it's hard to build, it's hard to build on a foundation that's cracked. And I think that's a really big question right now is when our constitution, our declaration of independence, all that is built on, our founding documents are built on calling Native people savages and Black folks three-fifths human. And I think these statues are all a part of that rethinking of our history.
it's so important because it, it, it really is in the air we breathe. It's, it's something that I think we really do have to go to, back to the foundation on some of these things. And it's my friend, Brian Stevenson, who's another person that's really influenced me. He started the Equal Justice Initiative down in Montgomery. One of the things he talks about is when you go to places that have this terrible history, like Germany, you see it memorialized by remembering the victims. And the weird thing is in our country, we've remembered the perpetrators of that violence. And you see just the, the entire uh, monuments to the Confederacy that, that are all over the South and, and, and all other places in our country, Mount Rushmore, all these things. So all that's being rethought. And what a, what a wonderful thing. Until we get our history right, we can't get our, our future right. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about salvation, and it says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and it's this image that this isn't just about a moment, but it's about a movement of being shaped and formed. So hopefully we can love more like God loves. We can have grace as big as God has grace. And any time that we our morality is oppressive to other people or we're, you know, propping up how good we are. That's something that Jesus really pointed out. And it's why I think like Jesus transcended the political and theological camps. And in fact, he was most harsh on religious people that were very self-righteous. He called them a brood of vipers, called it a yeast that, you know, is toxic, that kind of infects you. And he talked about the tax collectors and prostitutes that are entering the kingdom ahead of the religious people. So I think we got to have grace that God can change anybody. And I, I see a lot of open hearts right now. And, and I know people still say, you know, some people that start thinking about something new, they say, you know, ignorant things, hurtful things sometimes. But I'm glad that there's people that, uh, white folks especially, that have not thought about race that are now talking about it. So in this present moment, both politically and with the activism uprising in our country, what do you think all of this means for Christianity, how it needs to change or how it currently is changing? Well, there's certainly that version of white evangelicalism that I think is aging out and that is experiencing the same white fragility that we see around the country, which is, you know, on the back of the first black president, the Black Lives Matter movement, this real awakening of awareness, especially for white folks that have maybe not uh, cared as much as we should have about this. And, and so that's shaking a lot of things. And um, that's why I think it's wonderful, because I think there's some versions of our faith that they need to be shaken. And but you know it is also important that it's not something brand new. You know Frederick Douglass called this out, you know when Yeah, he what said did he say? He said he loves the pure peaceable impartial Christianity of Christ and therefore he hates the slave holding women whipping cradle plundering Christianity of this land. And he says I yeah. see no way that you can call them both Christian and embrace them both. So what about Trump and the evangelicals embrace of him? What does that mean for Christianity going forward? You know, Jerry Falwell is called Donald Trump uh, the dream president. And Franklin Graham said that God intervened in the election to help Donald Trump be president. So when when prominent white Christians are saying things like that and, you know, kind of 
colonizing our, our faith as they do it, I think it's our duty to give a different narrative. And that's what we what we talk so much about is, you know, changing the narrative of what Christians care about so that it's not just abortion and sexuality, but that we, you know, I think for so many people, uh, immigration, uh, racial justice, uh, the environment are things that that really our faith speaks deeply to those things. In fact, you look at the things that Jesus talked about, he actually didn't talk much about abortion or sexuality. He talked a whole lot about widows and orphans and unjust judges and day laborers that didn't get paid enough. And the kingdom of God that he talked about wasn't just something we're going up to when we die, but something that we're to bring on earth while we live. So it was a real invitation to reimagine the world. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. It's beautiful. One of the things that I've seen from some white Christians has been an inability to see how the Black Lives Matter movement is compatible with their faith. And in some cases, they've decided to fight against the cause outright. So I wanted to hear what Shane attributes to that kind of attitude surrounding this conversation, as well as the greater political conversation. I do think that some of it is about this white identity in a changing demographic of a country so that so many people are clinging to power and to their own racial identity as white people. When we think even of make America great again, underneath that for many people is make America white again. For those of us who say that we follow Christ. I mean, Jesus talked about making disciples, you know, not just a construct of theological beliefs, but changing who we are so that we live differently in the world. And, and sadly, I think that there are a lot of white Christians that are shaped more by their whiteness than by Christ. So there comes a point where we really have to choose. And, and that's why I find it so problematic to try to hold on to Jesus in one hand and Donald Trump and his policies in the other is they're just like opposing magnets, you know. But that is a problem, I think, is that kind of overriding some of our Christian convictions is this white identity that... Um, uh, boy, it it's 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 really is very scary, you know. And I think that's why you have people that are just saying things that you're like, "What in the world?" You know, like people are trying to make sense of this, and they're trying to hold things together that you just can't hold together. You know, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So I think there comes a point where you just can't um, uh, reconcile those, and that's cracking for a lot of people—people people that their faith is more important to them than trying to defend Donald Trump. What are some ways that you see whiteness co-opting Christianity specifically? I think that there are some narratives of, of why Jesus died that really reinforce some of our racist tendencies. I mean, even to this day, the KKK has claims to be a Christian organization, has a whole section of their website dedicated to their theology. Uh, so as one of my mentors said, when you twist the cross, you get a swastika. And it's, it's exactly uh, what happened in Nazi Germany is that Hitler had a, a 
very violent theology, he said things like, just as Jesus drove the Jews from the temple, I'm getting rid of them throughout the world. And he had this, you know, poisonous theology and the complicity of many Christians. There were many others, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the whole Confessing Church movement, the Anabaptists, others that were speaking out and dying for their opposition to the Nazis. But um, it was an accommodating church also that helped Hitler rise to power. We're going to hear more from Shane on this topic after a short break. Hi, guys. It's Zach. Thanks for tuning in to Proximity. If you're enjoying today's episode, we invite you to listen to the other episodes we have available. And if you know anyone who might enjoy our show, please spread the word. At this point, the only reason we're making this thing is because we can. So it means a lot to know it's getting out there. And if you have any recommendations for stories or people to talk to, don't hesitate to reach out. Now back to our episode with Shane Claiborne. Before the break, Shane was talking about how our whiteness and the structure of white supremacy around it can twist Christian theology in insidious ways. This is a concept that I've only begun to explore more recently through some insights from one of Shane's contemporaries and colleagues, Lisa Sharon Harper. We're going to link to her work in the show notes as well, but in one of her most recent educational live streams, she was talking about some of the key differences between the white version of Christianity and then black theology and the way that people like Dr. James Cone look at the Bible. I wanted to ask Shane if he could highlight some of those distinctions as he understands them. James Cone points out so well and the cross and the lynching tree, he calls Jesus, you know, the first lynchy and that a lot of black folks saw Jesus hanging on a tree as this profound act of solidarity with those who are suffering, that Jesus came and lived um, this embodied solidarity with humanity um, from the moment he was born until he was executed by the state. Um, And so Jesus was born as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee as Herod was slaughtering children from the, um, separating kids from families. You know, some of the, some of this stuff looks all too eerily familiar, but the idea that God suffers with us and ultimately exposes our violence on the cross in a way that makes a spectacle of that violence. And as, as James Cone says, and then Jesus steals the show with love, forgiving even those who are killing him and an empty tomb. You know, that this whole story is about the triumph over violence. So Jesus does that by absorbing the violence of the world to subvert it with with love. This is also important because you see, as my friend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove calls it slaveholder religion, some of the worst atrocities uh, in history and in American history in particular have been done with white folks with the Bible in their hand, watching folks get lynched on Saturday and going to church on Sunday. And what we did to Native folks, I mean, the, the Bible was it was absolutely instrumental, turning it into a weapon that justified this. And, and that's what Brian Stevenson says so well, too, is you had a lot of places in the world that had slavery. What's very unique about America is that we created a theology to justify what we did and to continue to this day to defend those things. 
So I think that a lot of this, what you're talking about, accounts for why we see a large amount of people rejecting the church and pulling away. I know that that's an element of my story even. So what do you say to those people that are wondering about how to reconcile all of that and if there's a place for them in Christianity? I want to start by saying I think a lot of the things that people are rejecting need to be rejected. I kind of said that earlier, but I want to say that really clear, you know, is that a lot of people that say, you know, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm an atheist or whatever. I've given up on God. I I like to lean in and I like to say, tell me about what you've rejected. And as they describe what they're saying no to, I've, I've rejected often all of those same things. And I say, but this is the thing is I do think that it gives too much power to the colonizing kind of monopolizing effect of white evangelicalism. If all we do is leave that and not recognize that there's a whole landscape of uh, spirituality outside of white evangelicalism, you know, listen to uh, Otis Moss and Jackie Lewis and Reverend Barber and Tracy Blackman, like these incredible preachers all over our country and Michael Waters and Freddie Haynes. I could just, you know, I can keep going out there they're everywhere, but they are outside of that kind of white evangelicalism. But like what I hear from them is a much, um, it's good news. It, like it is good news to the poor and the suffering. And that, that is what the gospel means. And if the gospel that we're preaching is only good news to white folks and billionaires. If it's, if it's not good news to the poor, it's not the good news of Jesus. Shane also mentioned that while we look at the 81% of white evangelicals that supported Donald Trump in 2016 as a defining figure, there was almost nearly the same percentage of non-white Christians that opposed Trump. I think some of the labels like evangelical, like I, I'm not interested in defending or tearing them down. Like if they work for you, great. But like, I, I do care about Jesus and I care about the integrity of the the message that's at the heart of our faith. I care about that uh, good news to the poor. That's why I think for a lot of people saying no to one version of Christianity is is actually the beginning of a, of a new reconstruction of something better, you know, a theology that can hold a pandemic, a theology that that can hold the horrific things folks have done with the same Bible. Uh, but even the fact that enslaved people, they heard the gospel past the violent hatred of white folks, like that message that this is the God that delivered us from slavery in Egypt that's continuing to deliver us now. This is the God who not only cares about people who are uh, uh, lynched, but actually experienced that violence in God's own self, even to the point that God says, why have you forsaken me? There's something in us that longs to live for something bigger than ourselves. that there's a narrative that's bigger than white evangelicalism. And that's the gospel of, of uh, God's liberation and God's healing of the violence of the world. When I think back to 2016, when Trump got elected with 81% of the white evangelical vote, I felt lost and betrayed when it came to my faith. It is folks like Shane who are calling people like me to this different, better, more Jesus-centric understanding of theology that have helped me realize that maybe there is another way. There's people, there's messages, there's movements that wouldn't be branded Christianity 
but what they're doing is the, the, the stuff that's at the heart of our faith. And that's where I think we got to, you know, challenge exactly like you are, like see that kind of dichotomy that, uh, you know, you, you're either in or you're out of this. Or as Jackie Lewis says, that God doesn't only speak Christian. So this question is specifically for white Christians. Um just kind of like what where do we go from here like what do you think our responsibility is what do you want to see change what do you want to see happen and you've kind of been saying it this whole time but just I'm going to ask you like more directly in like this in this question yeah just a few handholds I would suggest is that we do need to do some of our own work right we don't need to just uh keep asking leaders of color, like, what book should I be reading? Things like that. I mean, I think on the one hand, it is a very important time for us to, as white folks, to be listening, amplifying, standing with and behind leaders of color around the country, around the world, um, looking at the books, doing a little survey of the books on our shelves and, and what, what, how many of them are by white folks and how many are not. And the great thing is now you, so many of these books are getting well-warranted, far overdue uh, attention, you know, and uh, a lot of what we can do is teach history better, right? We can, even those simple books, like the uh, Lies My Teacher Taught Me, Lowen's book, those like they just demyth the, like, they show the horrific things that Christopher Columbus did and other things, you know, like we just need to do better on all of that. Um, and I think including some of our theology and some of our faith, um, we, uh, even, even the, the uh, worship songs that we sing, so many of them are about escaping the world rather than transforming it. So we need to kind of think through all that. But here's one other thing I would say is that I'm not a huge fan of guilt and shame. And the reason is that I think that guilt can be a good indicator, but it's a terrible motivator. I mean, you often feel guilt or shame when you recognize something that rightfully needs to be different, but we can't be motivated by that. I think we've really got to be motivated by love. And I, I really believe that Jesus, you know, when he said, I, I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullest, he, he wants to set us free. And ignoring this history and continuing to squash black and brown lives, I think, is continuing to leave us in a very unhealthy place as white folks. You know, the the kind of response of all lives matter and and going, you know what, this is not this is about the particularity of God's love. And when you look at our history and we called people three-fifths human, the Dred Scott case, we said black folks don't have rights. We're we're just emphasizing what we've neglected for hundreds of years. And I think that's really important to be able to be specific about God's love. And in our context, that means saying black lives matter. And and some some of those tendencies that we have as white folks, like I was even talking with someone this about this yesterday, like to be a voice for the voiceless. We've got to really step back and realize, like there are a lot of people that have voices, and people just haven't been listening. So rather than grab the mic, we need to hold the mic, and we need to do everything we can to amplify those those voices that haven't been heard as much as they should. I think that's certainly one of the really important things that we can be doing as as white folks right now. Yeah. Can you tell me about a little bit about the work that Red Letter Christians is trying to do around this whole topic? And so within this topic, obviously, is politics. It's also race. It's also, um, I mean, just like general, like fighting for the dignity and worth of everyone's lives, even through the pandemic. 
Yeah, so we've we've been, you know, for a long time recognizing that some of the loudest voices uh, in the news are not always the most beautiful voices when it comes to faithful Christianity. So, um, and particularly, um, we wanted to continue to raise up um, voices of Black and Brown and Indigenous uh, leaders and uh, women and men and LGBTQ voices. So that's been a priority of ours. Um, there's still a lot of white folks on there too, but we're prioritizing more and more leaders of color. Um, when we did our, we, we've had several public events that we called red letter revivals. And one of the things that we believe is that the best remedy for what's gone wrong in white evangelicalism is actually Jesus. So let's center Jesus and let's center preachers and writers and musicians of, uh, that are coming out of um uh, you know, a non-white uh, evangelicalism. And so we've, we've had a beautiful experience. You can see all those sermons on our website. Um, and we've got a couple of, we were going to do a, a revival around the two political conventions this year, uh, the DNC in Milwaukee and the RNC in Charlotte, and all that's been changing with the pandemic and other stuff. And so we're doing two digital revivals. Uh, um, and the the one in around the Republican convention is going to be like four days around the, the giant triplets of evil of Dr. King. So racism, materialism and economic exploitation, and then uh, militarism and a culture of violence. And then the third, the fourth night is going to be all uh, womanist, womanist preachers, uh, seven in a row. So black women, you know, preachers that are going to be bringing the word. Uh, so all that, you know, I think is, is work that we've been doing. Now we're going to, you know, have a collective of songwriters and musicians and artists that are using their gifts to try to amplify Jesus and justice. We're going to put some links in the show notes for you to follow up and get more information on these events and learn more about Red Letter Christians in general. We're nearing the end of our episode with Shane, so like with every guest, I wanted to ask him what he would like for people to take away as the bottom line from this conversation. I would invite people not to give up on Jesus because of the embarrassing things that white Christians and others have done in Jesus's name. Um, Literally, this whole story is about a perfect God that is working through the cracks of a broken, you know, human condition. Even the folks in the Bible, David was a womanizer. He raped Bathsheba and had her husband killed. I mean, there's terrible stories of toxic masculinity in the scripture. And there's incredible stories of heroic women, the Hebrew midwives that, you know, defied the imperial orders, you know, and like we're a mixed up bunch, but I think that this story is ours. And we're invited to find ourselves in the story. We're invited to find ourselves in the grace that was shown to David as a, as a womanizer and a power-hungry king. We're invited to see our story and the, the, the courage of those, those midwives and of Mary and the women at the foot of the cross that were the first proclaimers of the gospel anyway, you know? So I think we, that's why the, the story's there for us. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And those principalities and powers, it also says in Ephesians, occupy authorities in high places. I won't name names, but you know, but I, I, I think literally 
I, w- I will name I, D- Donald Trump is the manifestation of those principalities and powers right now. I think God could even change Donald Trump's heart. But right now, this spirit of white fear, racism, violence, it is a principality in power. Just in the middle of all this, like the good stuff is rising up too. And I think, you know, Donald Trump will be gone hopefully this this year, but all of that underlying stuff will still be there. And that's why, you know, we, we've got a we've got a deeper battle than just one person. And and it's also in our policing that you know, I, I, we've got a really close friend that's a police officer. And it's why it's important for me to be praying for him, to hope that he's safe, but to all, also realize that there's some systems and structures that we need to radically reimagine in our country because they're not working for most of us. This has been our episode with Shane Claiborne. We hope you enjoyed it. Like we mentioned earlier, we're going to link to more information about Shane and his work with Red Letter Christians in the show description for this episode. Check back next week for a new episode of Proximity. And thank you for tuning in.